<laughs> All right, Jack. Yeah, well, you want to kick us off then? Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent. What's well, we know who the hard left are in the you know ascendancy I, I, within the within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing the hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that sort of hard left-wing position, hard left, the 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 hard left, hard left, hard left, the 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 hard Welcome to Real Politic. I'm Jack. I'm here with my co-host Geraint, and hello, a longtime friend of the show, someone who's been on the show, in fact, several times. Juliet Jakes, a writer of some renown, who we are very glad to have here as always. Hey, yeah, good to be back. So we're going to be talking about like bleak shit really today <laughs> this is like this is okay are we finally doing the bellatar episode yeah it's so it's gonna have to be like at least four hours long like we're gonna be here to the small hours guys i certainly hope Some but, very long text, yeah. yeah exactly we just gotta we've gotta be laser focused on one subject at a time just like mr mr tar and uh, wait bellatar is a man right yeah yeah, yeah okay cool <laughs> <laughs> but any- anyway <laughs> right we're talking about the wreckage today we're talking about like our hopes and dreams lying in tatters we're talking about the left in the wake of the election and what's more really we're talking about being on the left in the wake of the election in the wake of this horrible defeat I've been talking to Juliet a fair bit about this recently, and I know that she's been writing something on the topic, so I thought that it would be a good idea to have Juliet on so that we can all kind of step back and and get our bearings of where we're at currently, as uh, Nick Cohen would say, what's left. Yeah. <laughs> I was depressed enough already, and then you referred <laughs> to the dark one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe if we maybe we start the show by Navara have been asking everyone where they were at ten o'clock on the night of the twelfth of December, twenty nineteen, and I had been canvassing all day or getting out the vote in Hastings and Rye with a few members of the sort of left kind of writers' caucus. So there was me, Nasty Ola. Douglas Murphy, Alex Ferguson, and a guy called Ed, who just joined us on the day. And star-studded we, canvas. We had spent all day traipsing around Rye in the cold and wet and the dark, 
And I've had this moment. We, we did our last bit of canvassing after dark. It was pitch black. And as we walked back to the car, I put my arms around Douglas and Alex and just said, guys, this has been a hard, grueling day. You know, we'd driven down there for like more than two hours. It's been a hard day, but if Labour win the seat and win the election, you know, we can all look back in years to come and say we were there and we did our bit. And then we drove back to London and we went to Owen Hathaway's house. I'd had several invitations to election parties and I'd said to people, I don't think I can be at a party because if this goes badly, I'm going to need to be around a quite select group of people. I think, Mm. yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of us took the Gramsci line about pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will a bit too much to heart. During the campaign, because I had said several things to people that, on hindsight, made me realise that I knew we were not going to win. And, you know, arranging to be in a quite secluded place when the exit poll dropped was a part of that. And so, you know, we got to Owens about half nine, not long before the exit poll dropped. And we all, you know, were genuinely unable to second guess how it was going to go none of us thought a big labor win was likely but we thought maybe a hung parliament and that moment when we watched the itv coverage and the bong went off and i just screamed the word no at the television really loudly i don't think anyone else spoke yeah uh, and then i just cried all night basically i mean some of the most memorable bits of it i mean for me the image will never leave me of alan johnson because we watched the itv coverage that fucking bastard alan johnson sort of sat there immediately demanding that momentum be expelled from the party and then john lansman coming on and you know poor lansman has taken you know dogs abuse from just about everybody and then the sight of alan johnson just berating him whilst the austerity Mm -hmm. chancellor george osborne and the austerity shadow chancellor ed balls just turned around to him in unison just scowling at him and balls berating him as well while Osborne just sat there with his fucking shit-eating grin um that will never leave me the sight of my friends Owen Jones and Ash Sarkar just being sat on a sofa together you know at least they had each other but you know several of us in the room were mates with them and you know really felt their kind of pain and felt good on them for fronting up but it was really kind of excruciating to watch you know we took a bit of hollow joy from Swinson losing her seat but it was pure schadenfreude by that point because we'd been watching the early results coming in and they were seats that mostly Labour had kept but they'd kept with terrible swings against them yeah yeah I mean I think the the moment of the greatest fury of the night uh, I'd done a lot of canvassing in Kensington yeah of course and because, you know, I kind of thought, I mean, this is maybe a structural problem that we can come back to. But I thought, look, I'm pretty middle class and I've lived in London for a long time and I've always lived in the southeast. Maybe I would be more persuasive in a place like Kensington than if I was bussed up to, I don't know, Bolsover or Grimsby or something. And, you know, so I've been canvassing Kensington a lot. Owen had interviewed Emma Dent Code. I'd met her a few times on the campaign trail and spoken to her. You know, Sam Guillermer was, of course, the MP for my hometown. So he's someone I'd kept an eye on. Oh, yeah, me too. He Hopefully was, he was my MP well. for the, yeah. several um, years, yeah. Lucky you guys. Oh, and wow. watching that count in Kensington when they, you know, announced the Tories had won by 150 votes and, you know, immediately the fury in the room and we're watching all the Grenfell Action Group people just yelling shame at Sam Guillemot. Yeah, it was horrendous. I mean, Owen and I stayed up the longest. Owen had been getting out the vote in Southampton Itchin because he's from Southampton. And obviously the Tories won that by 30 votes. And at that point, he just said, like, fuck this and just got up and went to bed. And I went to bed as well. Didn't sleep all night. 
had a lot of depressing realizations through the night. Like one of them was that every single seat I've been canvassing in, we'd lost. Fuck. Hastings, Barnet, Kensington, uh, Chingford. Like we'd lost all of them. Um, Chingford was a real fucking low. Like yeah. he's a great young candidate for Sheen, mm-hmm. and just to think that a fucking hated and reprehensible and establishment a figure as Ian Duncan Smith, you know, only narrowly, but still couldn't yeah. be toppled by this insurgent campaign, was fucking bleak as fuck. That was the one that it looked like we had everything lined up where no matter how the overall election went, good or bad, all the ducks were in a row to be getting a, a proper trophy there, you know? Getting yeah. rid of, of one of the real But was real that a bastards? problem with the campaign? Was the sort of slightly hubristic focus on a couple of trophy seats? And then I'm thinking up to Chingford. There were 700 people in Chingford one Saturday morning. And, you know, could we have been better organised and distributed? I mean, I understand why everyone wanted to go to Chingford. Like, I'm on universal credit at the moment. So yeah. I was happy to go along and try and get rid of the architect of it. But yeah, I do wonder if a sort of mixture of hubris and lack of organisation was a problem. So I stayed over and the following morning we got up and we just sat around and just took it in turns to just kind of recriminate and just break down in tears basically I mean it really I think it probably was the worst night of my life actually Mm. and I'm still not over it you know I'm still kind of grieving I'm still questioning myself I'm questioning a lot of the assumptions I made after 2017 I'm realizing that a lot of my lifelong assumptions I dropped in 2017 you know I'd always kind of thought two things about British politics and one of them is essentially that we just don't live in a democracy, you know, like unelected yeah. second chamber, unelected head of state, media that defines incredibly narrow parameters of what is politically permissible and constantly shifts them to the right and, you know, is unaccountable, overly powerful. And then my second precept was that the English middle classes in particular, you know, are actually just kind of petty, selfish, racist, you know, willfully uninformed about things. Uh, you know, I often think back to the Patrick Healer film, London, that line about the English middle classes that continue to vote conservative because in their miserable hearts, they still believed it was in their best interest to do so. <laughs> um, and, you know, after the 2015 election, we were all quoting that an awful lot. And then yeah. after 2017, I kind of thought, well, OK, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe if you offer people a positive vision politically, then they'll respond well to it and you know there were several warning signs that i think a lot of us missed because labor seemed to have done well you know in northern cities you know a lot of us missed the fact that actually a lot of previously safe seats have become by then quite marginal and that was quite a long-term yeah process and a lot of us sort of missed that actually the tories they got a lot of votes in that election and they were always going to keep that army of pensioners together and i think a lot of us just assumed that the huge vote that Theresa May got, actually, you know, because the whole media narrative was like Theresa May running a dreadful campaign, which, yeah, I think she did. And our narrative was like Corbett actually ran a really, really good campaign, which I think they also did in 2017. Our narrative ended up being that, like, well, next time we will flip this and we will win whatever the media says about us. We can overturn this by, you know, having a really good ground game. And the ground game was very good and was very well organised. Uh, they were very badly organised, sorry, that was a problem. Was really badly organized. But there was another problem with the canvassing model that I hadn't really anticipated. And that was the effect of the media and social media 
filling people's heads with stuff that canvassing not only does it not give you enough time to overturn you know you're not going to like overcome like four years of just hysterical shrieking bullshit in one doorstep conversation there's another problem which is that if you knock on someone's door and you just say like are you going to vote labor and somebody says like i'm not going to vote for this like guy he supports hamas you're not allowed to ask the obvious follow-up question which is oh you know what hamas is do you um because you you know you can't knock on someone's door and just immediately tell them they're talking bollocks that they've got from the tabloids like even if they manifestly are i was actually canvassing in croydon in 2017 and somebody did that and we ended up with six of us spending 20 minutes talking this guy down because he was so angry because this woman had just said to him like oh you got that from the sun did you and again we probably should have seen more of that coming sorry i just monologued for a really long time there but this is all all been going round and round and round in my mind ever since that moment so yeah those are my kind of initial thoughts on the election itself yeah i think what you're talking about with the one last push theory of corbynism i mean i think there was genuinely some basis to believe that theresa may's fortunes after holding on to 42 percent but losing her majority at that election probably would have continued to decline, much in the way that Jeremy Corbyn's did over that subsequent period of time. And there is a chance that maybe Labour would have been able to take her on, but Johnson had the kind of... For some reason, and we can go on all day about how he's posh and rich, you know, everyone knows he's not really anti-establishment, but he had that brand of insurgency that comes from having recently assumed office and And also from not being in the cameron government for the most part i mean you know he wasn't in the austerity cabinet and i think that's important too that is probably true yeah and i just feel like after 2017 there were obviously mistakes made by the left but there was never any space given to the left to just breathe to collect themselves it was very much deal with this deal with this deal with this i mean like right away in the summer just the couple of months after the election i think there was sarah champion for some reason deciding to mm. torch her career by becoming a martyr for islamophobes basically Jeez, yeah. there was She'll be back, yeah. there was the row over haringey which was perhaps mm. the most emblematic example of how a left agenda would never be accepted by the establishment of the Labour Party, however mm. much Corbyn's mandate as leader was superficially accepted for a time. And there was, of course, just the whole hysteria about how horrible and mean Labour supporters had been throughout mm. the election, which, of course, we were in part yeah. on the receiving end of. But it was a much more general kind of conversation about, right, you know, people need to learn to respect authority a bit more that set in after the election as well. Now that coupled with a kind of retreat into business as usual from the Corbyn-led Labour Party becoming in many ways just the same old Labour Party. Well, yeah, I mean, they definitely made the same mistake as their predecessors with the kind of quote-unquote northern heartlands of just saying, look, we'll get to you later. That was definitely there. And yeah, I mean, Brexit did suck a lot of life out of the party and out of the movement. And it was a very successful wedge issue. And you will never talk me out of my firm conviction 
that the people behind the People's Vote movement, this was exactly their intention, you know. Oh, yeah, um, of course. Well, that was the mm -hmm. other thing. I mentioned all those kind of wedge issues that were instantly thrown at the leadership in the wake of their successful electoral showing in 2017. But, of course, the primary line of attack immediately shifted to they've betrayed young people over Brexit. That yeah. was everywhere. Like, Andrew Adonis, after the election... 2017 he was like oh right well i declared partisan politics over like two years ago when i went to go and work for the tory government but now i'm going to rejoin the labor party and apparently corbyn was just like yeah okay <laughs> and adonis yeah. immediately back as a labor peer gave an interview to the new statesman banging on about the fucking eu and saying that corbyn should resign so well, like... corbyn's response to far too many things unfortunately was yeah okay okay yeah <laughs> um yeah also remember when the labor party nec ruled that the mayor of south yorkshire would have to step down from his seat in parliament in order to become mayor and all the melts in the party kicked up a big stink and then our friend mr dan jarvis was able to be both an mp and mayor of South Yorkshire, because Corbyn was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I love the man, and I always will, but it kind of broke my heart. Was it this week? It was this week, wasn't it, with the sort of deportations that have been going on? And, you know, Corbyn standing up in Parliament and berating Johnson by saying, look, you know, if this was like a white man with blonde hair who, you know, was doing drugs and had conspired to beat up a journalist, would that person be deported if they'd been a US citizen at the time? And he was just like, mate, why didn't you do this before? <laughs> you know, I mean, Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party because, yes, he was carrying a lot of our kind of hopes and dreams. Yes, he'd been on the right side of all the right struggles, really, in the last sort of 40 years or so in a way that was, you know, kind of deeply, deeply romantic. I mean, I went to the final Labour rally in Hoxton the night before the election and Corbyn closed by talking about and then quoting Victor Hara, you know, the Chilean yeah. songwriter and poet who was killed in the Pinochet coup. Yeah, And that was already beautiful, but we also had made him leader twice because of the anger we had about the way a lot of the things were run and the people who'd been running them. And, you know, if you can't get angry at a man like Boris Johnson, then who can you get angry at? I can sort of see why you'd be a little bit more collegiate with Theresa May even. I can sort of get my head around that. But it should have been given both barrels to Johnson like throughout the campaign. Yeah. And he just didn't do it. It was a potential weak spot that the Tories were allowed to turn into a strength, if you like, exactly, you know? Yeah. They got to use the sort of banter candidate stuff, but also play to his base as if he was a solid, serious guy. Pretty much, yeah. And I mean, some of the stuff that has been allowed to pass as good politics as a result. I mean, I saw an interview with Boris Johnson where he just said, oh, yes, yes, I, uh, I got into a digger and I, uh, I drove it through a big wall of bricks with Brexit written on it. It's simple, it seems silly, but it worked. And it's yeah. like, it doesn't work. It's obviously bullshit but you have like a sort of a media infrastructure that is basically given over to mass fucking gaslighting yeah. um, and yeah. everyone can see this stuff is bollocks and what we always liked about corbyn was there was never any of this sort of shit but say why you're not doing anything like that and take the piss out of it 
yeah, make sure your positive there is, is framed as a positive and people notice it that aren't extremely online political people like us, basically. Well, there's you know? that Dominic Cummings line, isn't there, about what does politics look like with the sound turned down? And unfortunately, I think a lot of the Corbyn campaign, if you had the sound turned down, looked just like it wouldn't look any different with the sound turned up. It's just him on a podium in front of With a, a fairly background. weak slogan on it. Yeah, 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 what was it? They should have just kept for the many, not the few. Like, exactly. I don't, that yeah. was, it's what we were about. Socialism is an eternal struggle. It doesn't change from 2017 to 2019. <laughs> we're still about the many rather than the few. I mean, I'd have even gone with something like health, housing, hope, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, know. Something that positively changed the terms of the conversation. But we could recriminate all night. But ultimately, I mean, the moment I thought we were in big trouble for the first time since 2017, the first time I kind of stopped thinking we'll win next time, was the European elections. Oh, yeah, yeah, because I just kind of thought when I was hearing all this stuff about, like, oh, no one's voting Labour, I was like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Like people... Everyone says that all the time, yeah. Yeah, like, that. F- come on, like, what the fuck? We got 40% of the population, like, fucking two years ago. Of course people are going to vote Labour. And then literally, like, fuck, all people voted Labour. And I was just like, what have the people's vote people done? But also, I voted Labour in the European elections because I wanted to back the leadership. And because I knew that a bad showing would be a disaster for the leadership. And my argument with some people was like, look, it's Labour strategy on Brexit that has kept us in long enough to have these elections. But that's Mm. not a particularly strong argument. And then when people were asking me for like a positive reason to vote Labour in those elections, I didn't have an answer and I didn't have a persuasive argument. And a lot of people voted Lib Dem in those elections, probably for the first time since maybe like 2010 or ever even. And, you know, voting Lib Dem, it's like murdering people. You know, it gets like once you've done it once, you've crossed that threshold. I mean, it's like murdering 130,000 people, according to the British Medical Journal. But anyway, they've done it. They voted Lib Dem. They've crossed that threshold and they weren't necessarily going to come back. And I mean, I do think that by the time the election came around, I'd sort of accepted the kind of grim reality of the second referendum. But you guys will have both have seen, I wrote for the New Socialist in 2018, a piece called Questions for the Organisers of the People's Vote Campaign. Mm. And I published this anonymously because I knew that if I put my own name to it, it would either get dismissed as, oh, she supports Corbyn, don't listen. Or I would just get loads of hassle from psychotic subpies or (laughs) like both. And I thought, well, you know, if it's anonymous, I can focus on the questions themselves. But I think I felt like 15 questions about what the question would be, how many options there'd be, what would you do if you got an option winning by sort of, you know, in a three-way referendum, winning by like 36% or something, that's no mandate for anything. Mm. You know, how would you engage people to vote in another referendum? Why do you assume that everyone who voted Remain last time will do so again? What do you do if it's the same result the other way? Like, all of these things, you know, who leads your campaign, seems you've made it fucking impossible for the leader of opposition to do it. Yeah. All of these things, and I never got a peep of an answer to any of them, and none of them were answered by the time the election came around. And I don't know if either of you did any canvassing where you tried to defend the Brexit position, let alone be enthusiastic and positive about it. <laughs> Try to explain it. Impossible. Um, I, I always caveat it just like saying, like, I mean, I don't really like the idea of a second referendum. Yeah. Just talking to people socially about it, you know, it's not a complicated policy, but it wasn't like a particularly appealing one either it had nothing that made you think okay that hits the spot you know it it was like no things to no people you know this was the main 
line of attack against the left after 2017, I guess anti-Semitism accepted, because the people who were full-time pro-EU people from that point on had previously been, for the most part, like full-time anti-left people, or full-time pro-centre people, to be more, more positive. They all were just kind of constant doomsayers for, no, Labour cannot win. Labour will get, like, 20 one percent in a general election under jeremy corbyn's leadership and Mm -hmm. then when that was proven to be untrue that was when they all suddenly shifted to a position of we need to focus solely on the eu which to be fair actually a lot of the blairites were arguing during the campaign but it was Mm -hmm. clearly that they were just wrecking for the television studios because labor was showing and did show with a result of that election that their previous Brexit policy, at least at that point, bridged a much larger group of people. Um, But then the People's Vote campaign seemed to emerge. I know that it was obviously formed from the remains of Open Britain. The BSE campaign. um, Yeah. Yeah. Stronger in Europe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Later mutated into the campaign for justice and democracy. What? That that sounds like one of... CJD. it sounds like a dodgy, like, English nationalist small party or something. But, I no, guess it's the... just a joke about mad cow disease. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> it probably wasn't a thing when you were born, actually. I, I, I know of it. I know of the mad cow disease. One, one for the young people. Um... Mad cows in the south, mad cows in the north. <laughs> well, quite. <laughs> but, yeah, this was, like, literally, I can't contain my absolute hatred for the People's Vote campaign because oh, yeah. I, was able, I was able to see in action myself i was able to look in the mirror and see a person who did not agree with labor's brexit policy but was campaigning passionately for a labor government led by jeremy corbyn and i realized that once we'd adopted that second referendum position wow you know i can disagree with labor's brexit policy and this not be the only fucking thing driving my politics so yeah that did kind of make me think so why couldn't these fuckers have extended us the same courtesy since 2017? Perhaps they had some other motivation. Why do you think these people have gone so quiet since the election? I mean, we know why Wimble Jollyon's gone so quiet. Um, <laughs> Not as quiet as the fucking fox, Because hey. of the fox killing kimono incident. But, uh, I mean, normally you'd assume it was on advice from his lawyer, but like, who does something like, <laughs> like what, What's his plan there? <laughs> what does that look like? Bring people that he is the boss of and be like, lads, I've got a problem. <laughs> I think Trevor Bastard put it quite well. He was like, basically, centrist goes on Twitter because they're a compulsive Twitter person, tweets something that is like entirely at odds with the public mood on the subject he's tweeting on. And then gets like the subject of like a massive Twitter storm and then gets attacked by the right for something that the right do much more often and much more brazenly and brazenly and nicely anyway. <laughs> um, I mean, that telegraph was literally just like item one, like horrible Remainer lawyer, like batters Fox to death in drag. Item two, like, look at this boy. He's launching a fox hunt. Isn't this brilliant? <laughs> well, I like the Guardian article that was like Jolian Morgan was a hero to many then he battered a fox to death with a baseball bat <laughs> it really really felt like probably the most Trevor Bastard extended universe thing that isn't actually part of that 
feel like the whole like FBP movement is just the Trevor Bastard extended universe though. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of the stuff with like EU Supergirl and that, and just her dancing around with the very dubious, discredited priest guy that runs onto the track at F1 events and stuff, <laughs> and like spotting him and basically dancing up with him and be like, oh, leprechaun, potato, and, and all this just horrendously racist the risk shit. Of being insanely cliched and dropping my second Gramsci reference in half an hour. Like, symptoms don't get any more morbid than the Supergirl, do they? I've got a, a friend, like, someone, someone I know who's a football, who, like, bought the Corbyn did Brexit narrative and joined the Liberal Democrats. And, uh, you know, just as a sort of reconnaissance thing, really, I would, like, ask her about, you know, what's going on with the Lib Dems. And Madeleine McKay, EU Supergirl, was a Lib Dem member and basically would... <laughs> Everyone like they go to like the Dem conference and like everyone's like, oh no, Madalena's here and she's brought the guitar and yeah. they're just all these Lib Dems are just like hiding in like broom cupboards and stuff and just get away from her. <laughs> Um, I don't know if she joined Labour, but she endorsed the Jess Phillips campaign. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe we should stop recriminating on the election and the campaign, especially the Brexit stuff. I sort of feel like it's just been relitigated to death now. How are you guys feeling about the leadership campaigns so far? Oh, shit. Terrible. Well, what I want to say, if you've not seen it yet, I did enjoy Keir Starmer's stand-up act tonight. <laughs> oh, I've, I've seen this, yeah. Yeah. Jack, I mean, should we try and get Keir Starmer into the East Surrey Revolutionary Soviet? Because he's um, he's from our end. I think, like, 20-year-old Keir Starmer, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure the Keir of today would be much interested. <laughs> oh, God, I had something to say just before we got onto EU Supergirl. <laughs> I'm, I'm just scratching my head now. Uh, All you can think of is that horrible sort of whiny fucking cranberry's voice the artwork the artwork oh the artwork does. oh my god oh um, my god no let's not do an extended yeah. riff on the use of the girl because you know, we don't talk about the weather i've already covered that they've been very on that yeah um, yeah well, i can't think what i was gonna say it was just some more i think or just about the fucking remainers just all there just, yeah just... i feel like we, we don't talk about the weather or like the premiere sort of like analysis of remainer weirdness podcast um, oh definitely well no well actually yeah. i think there is something about remainers that links to my feeling about the labor leadership contest really which was something that andrew adonis said in a guardian long read called like the rise of the remainists or something. oh yeah andrew it's adonis... the nearest the guardian could get to actually saying these people are psychos <laughs> yeah 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 exactly like these fucking wankers that we're pitching every single article to yeah they're idiots did you know that <laughs> like... <laughs> it's like yeah thanks is there going to be any change in your editorial no yeah so this was by daniel cohen this is called loud obsessive tribal the radicalization of remain and all well it's a good piece but all i really want from this is the andrew adonis quote which i think sums up my opinions on the Remain movement. Adonis defines Remainism as a revolt of the middle class, and that is why he believes that, in the end, Brexit won't happen. The English middle class, deeply alarmed, will be heard and will win, he told me. That's my whole experience of politics. And yeah, well, the I... other faction of the British middle class won, and if you'd been fucking paying attention <laughs> properly, 
you'd know that the backbone of the Brexit vote was just like comfortable, retired, middle-aged people with not an awful lot to kind of lose, who were kind of bored and racist. But if you kind of believe the whole sort of like John Harris kind of like, oh, no, it's all racist and all the world behind, which I'm sure Andrew Adonis did. At least he's capable of class solidarity, I suppose. I respect that. But um... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. But this basically very much encapsulates what I see happening in the Labour Party now. It's the revenge of the middle-aged, middle-class professionals who've been frozen yeah. out of the party for four terrible years. God, how mm. did they cope? Four years, a lifetime in politics. Not like anyone Both on the politically left. homeless, Jack. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, that's terrible. Not like I've been politically homeless for like my entire life or anything you know well, <laughs> like, exactly. not yeah. like people are literally homeless you know <laughs> these fucking bastards man like <laughs> i could just spend the whole thing saying this but yeah although i'm sure keir starmer himself is a very nice man by all accounts i see very much a large portion of his support as basically and probably he himself as well actually as trying to win back the Labour Party for this oh so oppressed group within our society and that deeply worries me <laughs> deeply I mean, concerns me I think it might have been one of the worst people John Rental tweeting <laughs> did you see this the other day tweeting about how Starmer was basically going to be like Ed Miliband Mark II and that's pretty much how I see it turning out as well. I think it's just going to yeah. be quite directionless, you know, in sort of six months to a year. No one's really going to know what the party's for. You'll have Guardian comment writers just being like, Keir Starmer really forensically took apart Boris Johnson in Parliament. But I wonder if they'll even be able to gaslight us like that, because Keir Starmer, with all due respect to him, is not going to be able to forensically take apart Boris Johnson in Parliament. Nah. Because trying to forensically take apart Boris Johnson is like trying to explain Wittgenstein to a puppy. Like, there's no point. Yeah. Like, he's not going to listen. It, it can't uh, work if Boris Johnson's not playing by the accepted rules of exactly. the, the polite yeah. debate anyway, you know? Well, yeah. This is almost what I thought about your point earlier, Juliet, about Jeremy Corbyn just being mm. unwilling to really take on Johnson personally I think part of that is just like he he probably just kind of thought it was sort of pointless mm. he, he, he was probably looking at Johnson and thinking he's succeeding almost like on the terms that I would like to you know where he can exist outside of this framework where he has to play by the rules and by mm. that point Corbyn had fallen very much into doing things in an established sort of fashion yeah no i think that's all true but yeah i do just feel it's gonna be like this very sort of top down under you know Kirsten, very top down type of politics very managerial very bureaucratic pretty uninspiring and deliberately uninspiring you know designed to demotivate and demobilise people um, and yeah, I get, think just get leftists to just leave the party on their own yeah and I think the result yeah. of it in five years time will be more vote losses to the Greens possibly the Lib Dems although I think the Lib Dems would find themselves very really struggling to reorient themselves around a Keir Starmer Labour Party if Rebecca Long Bailey wins I think there'll be more of a realignment broadly among class lines and I don't know if that would be good for the Lib Dems necessarily but it's easier to see how they would like position themselves whereas I don't know how they would orient themselves around Keir Starmer 
because I don't think they've got the cachet or even the personnel to go back to where they sort of were under like Charlie Kennedy and move themselves to the left of Labour. I mean, they've got so few MPs, but the ones they've got, I don't think are capable of doing that. So I don't know what happens there. But, you know, then I think in five years time, you'll have a pretty weak campaign, which might well go back to the Ed Miliband strategy of just sort of saying, like, we're not as nasty as they are. And I think Wales will go the same way as Scotland and Northern England. I think they'll win yeah. the North back. And I think it'll be even worse than this time, actually. Fewer seats and a much smaller share of the vote. Yeah, all the things that I said, I don't know how it would have ever been effective, Corbyn attacking Boris Johnson on kind of the terms that a lot of people wanted him to attack him on. More the kind of the way that the media said, oh, Corbyn gets sent off for an early bath rather than people on the left wanting him to really strongly, viscerally, ideologically challenge him. I just don't know how Keir Starmer would be better at any of this than Corbyn. I mean, that video today uh, where he's doing his fucking stand-up routine. Jesus Christ. The guy's the worst fucking public speaker I've ever heard. I mean, it's a crowd that are there to see him, I believe, for the most part, right? And there's a couple of laughs of maybe 30 (laughs) seconds in, but there's just dead silence. Yeah, everyone's just whooping at Jeremy's jokes. It's a a please clap moment, isn't it? You know? Well, the fact that he's boring can't tell a joke. Like, that's exactly why they were all voting for him. They're yeah. like, we need somebody who is just grey, beige, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah, the tweets going around comparing him to Max Headroom were pretty good, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite bizarre, I think. We've had so many years of being told that we're all nasty, terrible interests and it's disgraceful and entryism itself is completely illegitimate, if you like, as a political tactic. Yeah. And we're basically, from my own CLP meeting, from reports I'm hearing from people on Twitter or other ones, and the general sort of mood on the ground is that we're now seeing sort of entryism of, again, potentially they could be coming back like a lot of left-wing mm. Labour members were, but of middle class and upper middle class, mainly middle-aged mm. men and women, joining purely to get their candidate in. Some of them seemingly mainly on Remainer first grounds, if you like. And they've been telling us for years that both it should be a sort of length of tenure in the Labour Party is important to how valuable you are as a member and also that we need to put electability first at every stage. Mm. And here we're getting this and they're going to land us with Mr Remainer that has contributed greatly, I think, to one of the main causes of our defeat. Yeah, and somebody who I think in future, I mean, even if we move beyond Brexit and Keir Starmer's role in the policy becomes less relevant, which if he wins, then I hope it does, because whatever happens to the Labour Party will still be the least bad option. But it might end up going back to just being the least bad option. And, you know, everyone was sick of that five years ago yeah but you know i don't really buy the sort of electability narrative i don't really see what it is with him that people are supposed to be sort of excited about or enthused about or what he's going to bring that's kind of different when people point out i think that he is polling higher than the other candidates particularly (laughs) Rebecca long bailey i think that is because he's got an easy ride so far you know it's true that as labor's brexit secretary a lot of people who are quite right wing will have seen him as a bit of a folk devil along with Corbyn and Abbott and so on for a few years but at the same time there's an enormous amount of you know the Andrew Adonis middle classes who are enormously well disposed to Keir Starmer and the press coverage so far even in the right wing papers has been very much Starmer is obviously the sort of reasonable choice even if some stuff that Lisa Nandy's saying may be more 
to the liking of right-wing papers, and obviously Jess Phillips was ideologically uh, <laughs> their number one choice, because I think her ideology is, can I write for you, please? <laughs> but RLB is very much proving when people said, oh, Corbyn was the problem, you know, Corbyn was just this unacceptable level of baggage. Well, it seems like RLB entered the contest with an enormous amount of baggage from basically being on the left and supporting yeah. Corbyn. The smear stories started right away and have been there ever since and there's already people writing her off and just saying no she is just beyond the pale for whatever reason and it's just pretty clear at this point that anybody who is factionally on the left of the Labour Party anyone who organizes with the left of the Labour Party is going to be tarred with the same brush as Corbyn was. You know, yeah. cutting the head off the snake or whatever. I know Emily Thornberry had a convoluted metaphor. But I think she was just like, if you cut the head off the snake, then you've just got a dead snake. But um, <laughs> you cut the head off the snake, the snake being the labour left, and just that's basically just saying to everyone, like, chop the rest of the snake up into little pieces while you're at it. Well, they found a strategy that works. Um, yeah. Why would they not persist with it? What can we do about it? I mean, I've been impressed by Long Bailey engaging with Navara and with Tribune. That was something Corbyn did a bit of, but I think should have done a lot more of. I mean, I hope that if Long Bailey does become leader, then, you know, maybe starts producing like a podcast or some better way of like getting her own ideas out. Shit. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, you know, sort of dirt, she, she, she can join the tapes, all right. The, the, <laughs> the, the problem with this, these Labour politicians is they just want to destroy the market by, by you know, <laughs> suppressing small business like us. It's always been the role of the Labour Party on the left, Jack. It ultimately just sucks everything up into itself. <laughs> and I feel like the Dirtbag Left podcast scene is going to be the next thing that gets pulled into its orbit. Quickly, I'm almost worried about the opposite, actually. I'm worried what becomes of us without this central force on the left. Well, the left, the last few years, has had something to kind of revolve around yeah. the Jeremy Corbyn leadership. Now it's splintering before our very eyes and becoming increasingly atomized, And that's what I'm worrying about, this community that we've all existed in for the last few years we've been part of something bigger than ourselves and i worried that that is now falling apart well this was it i mean like i said i spent all of the night of the election just weeping but it was partly for you know the people who really need this to work you know the people with like crippling student debt the homeless people the people reliant on the nhs all these other people who are going to suffer but it was partly because the scale of the defeat was so bad and the ferocity of the reaction immediately Mm. was so brutal as i guess we always expected it to be i kind of thought we're going to lose everything we're going to lose all of our networks and all of our access to policy making and influence within this thing that's much bigger than ourselves you know what's going to happen to the world transformed what's going to happen to momentum what's going to happen mm. to the sort of policy networks that have sprung up i thought this is going to kill everything and there's still this huge uncertainty at this point i mean we've still got another i think nearly just you know seven weeks or something until the new Labour leader is announced and I think if Rebecca Long Bailey wins then we can hope to keep some of this stuff but even her I mean you know she was part of the 2015 intake I think yeah so you know I mean she's basically just a sort of like left Miliband era MP she doesn't have the same unifying effect as Corbyn of having been through 
decades of struggle, not just on our behalf, but kind of with us. And that romanticism of being attached to causes, the, the right causes, no matter how futile they might have appeared. And, you know, that internationalism I'm really going to miss as well. I mean, I went to Rebecca Long-Bailey's first rally in London and she talked about being from Salford a lot. And obviously she began her leadership campaign by talking about progressive patriotism and lots of people on the left were saying, like, oh, God, do we really have to go back to this? This." I think even Mm. in her own team, there was a lot of dissent on that. You know, that was quickly dropped by the campaign. It was, yeah. And, you know, she wrote a much better piece for Tribune a couple of weeks later. Yeah, and the rest and, of that piece I thought was quite good as well. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. Yeah, not I exactly just, like, wow. You know, but... what I loved about Corbyn was that there was none of that, and what he had instead yeah. was this internationalism and this yeah. real sense of international history. I mean, you know, Corbyn, That's you know, it. obviously we're talking about his links to the Battle of Cable Street, and he did do that thing that pretty much all senior Labour politicians do, which is construct this narrative of domestic leftism throughout the 20th century but you know he also had links to the spanish civil war through his parents he had this interest in chile you know this interest in palestine mexico in 2017 when we had the writer tim mcgowan on the show he talked about i forget the name of a book now i have it upstairs but it's an anthology of mexican very politically conscious short stories and corbyn turned up to the book launch of this anthology of politically minded Mexican short stories, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, he had, like Ben Ocri at the South Bank Centre. That was great. You, you know, like, who this... else do you get this from? Interesting involvement with like DM25, the thing with like Yanis Varoufakis <coughs> and Brian Eno and Shrek Horvat and people. And yeah, like you say, you don't get this from anyone else. Like that internationalism, that's very much of an age. And I feel it's very much of the 60s and 70s. And it's mm. gone with Corbyn, yeah. you know. One of the things I loved about Corbyn was he felt like our last chance of specifically reversing the injustices of the 80s and 90s in particular. Corbyn stood for opposition to what was done at Orgreave, opposition to the way the Hillsborough disaster was handled, you know, opposition to kind of privatisation and neoliberalisation, opposition to Section 28, all of these things. And, you know, some of those battles were won in the end, but most of them weren't. And Corbyn felt like our last hope of overturning those. And even someone like me, you know, I grew up in the 90s. And so even coming to the left in the 90s for me, it was quite a sort of backwards looking thing. People were still interested in the sort of legacy of like May 68 and, you know, the sort of movements that you'd see in the Chris Marker film, A Grin Without a Cat. What sort of 60s, 70s protest movements around sort of Asia, South America, the US and African liberation struggles. And again, that historical link is severed now. And we are going to get a new type of left, I think. And I don't know what that's going to look like and whether yeah. that's going to sort of primarily take root through the Labour Party. I and mean, then also, after several weeks of just mourning and crying after the election, the first thing I did politically was go to a Stop the War rally in London oh, a uh, day or two after the uh, Soleimani killing. Oh, and John, John McDonnell and Richard Bergen spoke. But, you know, it was like in Whitehall, there was all the people with the Stop the War placards. There were about maybe 200 people there. You know, the usual sort of suspects speaking. And it felt good to go and do something, but I also kind of thought, oh, God, we're right back in 2003 again, and really not in a good way. So I it... hope we don't end up going back to that, and I don't think we will. But like you say, the sort of potential for us to be split and atomized again is there. And like and you say, it feels like almost an end to political possibility. 
who always yeah. thought, well, these great historic wrongs, maybe one day we could right them. And mm-hmm. then Corbyn being like the last gasp of a generation, at least over here, because Bernie Sanders is even older and he's yes. very much going strong at the moment. <laughs> but the last gasp of a generation that tried to right those wrongs and was weaned on 60s radicalism, you know, May 68 and international national liberation movements and protest movements closer to home. Yeah, so it's a terrible shame. It feels like one of the defining messages that we've got from the election has been just like, you can't be left wing on foreign policy. Like, it's just unacceptable to not think that the West are the good guys and the bad guys are just like our enemies you know whatever that means and this is the most worrying thing for me literally before the proper i mean i'd cry i'd had a bit of a cry and stuff but before the proper post-election depression set in that was one of the first things i tweeted i was like i absolutely do not think we were wrong to elect an anti-imperialist internationalist as labor leader we should always do so in the future we should stand by those principles because they are the right thing and i've been you know i support rlb I'm not preferencing any other candidate. I think a lot about her campaign is really good, but there's nothing on foreign policy. It's been absent completely. And the JLM leadership hustings show really the extent to which the parameters of debate on foreign policy have been narrowed. Yeah. Yeah, that's my feeling too. And I mean, you know, there is also, you know, over this weekend, we've seen the sort of legitimate concern stuff sneak back into the Long Bailey campaign as well, which is a shame to say the least. And I can maybe look the other way. Well, no, that's the wrong way of putting it. I can forgive it if it's just something to help her win the contest and then you know we can at least take issue with it but it's a real shame to see that creeping back mm. in even for the left candidate and i mean yeah i like long bailey but yeah there's just not that same sort of romanticism to her really she's fine basically is my feeling about long bailey at the moment <laughs> well um, a very popular phrase in the Labour Party is another something is possible mm. now I, I don't know if Keir himself is running with another world is possible as his slogan another that future was, is possible another future okay yes. but John McDonnell did another world is possible in 2007 I think when mm. he ran for leader and the AWL obviously have another <laughs> Europe is possible but the election it's almost kind of been like it sent people the message of another world is not possible that yeah. very much and that feels like the real slogan of the Keir Starmer campaign for me it's just like look we've got to retreat we can't be taking these punches that you get if you're a real socialist anymore and I understand why people would feel like that because god most of the last four years has been pretty kind of grueling and depressing and dispiriting and you know we've been like monstered and gaslit and constantly on the defensive and obviously the end was horrific and you know i don't know about you but i'm going to be permanently scarred by this yeah yeah. i think we all are. i think this is you know this is a generational trauma for us up there with like the miners strike for the generation before us or 1983 i guess but yeah it does feel like you know the starmer thing feels like a reaction to trauma and a sort of desire for something that feels safe after you know something that was a big risk <laughs> But God, it's depressing. 
Yeah. yeah. Do you think Paul Mason is backing Starmer quite so vociferously uh, because he's just made such a cunt of himself to like all the other people in his profession by supporting Corbyn? <laughs> he's desperate to get another column at the Guardian. God, I think I he's finally burnt all his bridges on the left and realised. Burnt all his fucking brain cells. I think that was a while further back. <laughs> I don't want to try and second guess Paul Mason at this point. <laughs> I don't know what happened there because I mean you know I saw him at the World Transformed in 2018. And on Labour and Brexit and you had a woman who I forget who she was now but she was just very pro-Remain she was like look we should just be a pro-Remain party you had like Kostas Lapovitsas who's like the most lexy man in the world he quit Syriza when they capitulated to the Troika you had Anne Pettifor who was basically saying I'm more Remain but we need to accept the result and deal with it and Paul Mason who was saying I'm more Leave but we should accept the result and deal with it and you know Paul Mason was on stage just going if you want another referendum you are going to have to go to Bolton to Hartlepool to Bury and go on the doorstep and explain to them why they can't have the thing they've just voted for and he was right and I don't know what happened to him since it's very sad and tragic. I assume it is personal. It must be because of a personal fallout with the leader's office, you know, because in 2016, he was all like, deselect the Blairite warmongers. And he was <laughs> saying that to, like, Andrew Slaughter, who's yeah. a soft left MP mm-hmm. who Matt Zarb cousin used to work for and who's, like, a long-time <laughs> Palestine advocate. But, yeah, Slaughter backed Owen Smith, but not exactly the most hardline Blairite. And Mason was just on tv like lambasting him well that wonderful clip of him at that progress thing yeah of course it's just great we played a clip of that on our last episode because what he said is still you know to me it's still true but this time he should listen to himself in that and and, you know go go off and form his own party well i mean i wonder how much of this is a lot of people are very traumatized they've been quite humiliated in public i certainly feel like that and i didn't publicly attach myself to the corbyn movement as much as some others i mean i did and it was interesting with that because corbyn ran for the labor leadership summer 2015 and it was the summer i'd got funding for my phd and i've been wanting to step away from frontline journalism because i was just sort of sick of the whole thing as has previously been discussed on your show and i was backing corbyn all the way i was like well look this party needs something different i can see this guy's not perfect by any means but god he's infinitely better than what there is here and it's that may finally make me feel like oh the Labour Party could be for me actually but I kept fairly quiet about it because I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue trying to work in mainstream journalism or not and the overwhelming message that was being given to any journalist particularly more peripheral ones which was most people on the left was like do not publicly attach yourself to this it will be a disaster and you'll be humiliated it'll probably destroy your career And, you know, I couldn't help internalising some of that. I mean, as it happened, my book was coming out and I was writing more about, like, trans stuff. So it wasn't really that big an issue for me. But it was only really after 2017 that I was like, right, fuck you. No, I was right (laughs) for long to support this. It's Um, weird. It doesn't seem to damage the careers of people with more right-wing politics to be fucking wrong about everything and attach themselves repeatedly to failed movements. Exactly. (laughs) It seems to, in fact, like, advance their careers, if anything. Congratulations. You wrote your op-ed about how Jess Phillips just had too much truth for the Labour Party. You are now an editor for this publication. (laughs) Well, this is it. I mean, we got a lot of stuff wrong and we had a lot of hubris, I think. And a lot of things that we did didn't serve us very well. 
I mean, I saw a friend of mine saying that a lot of our fuck the poll stuff was misguided. And I think that's probably true. But also, I think it is worth reiterating that nobody said ignore the polls. They're probably wrong for it to do anything. Everyone was like, ignore the polls. Don't let them get you down. Go out there and fight really hard for this. So I don't take that as too big an error. But the centre have been spectacularly wrong about absolutely everything <laughs> for at least the last 10 years. And also, you can't blame Labour for losing when you've tried hard to make Labour lose over the well, last this few is years. It. I mean, a lot of these columnists seem to think they're just impartial observers rather yeah. than active agents in the political discourse. And I think one of the things that I would give a bit more credit to left-wing journalists here, you know, the more prominent ones like Don Foster, Asaka. Owen Jones, but you know, even people like myself, a bit lower down the scale, writing about German communist drama for Tribune, or indeed writing about the world transformed for Freeze. We were aware that we were actively shaping discourse and shaping opinion, and that was what we were using our position for. We were kind of like propagandists. And it's not that us doing that was illegitimate, it's more, I think, our opponents not recognising that that's what they're also doing is just delusional at best. And again, they're not going to learn from that. And I do just worry that they're going to install Keir Starmer as Labour leader. And then he'll end up doing as well as any other sort of vague centre-left politician anywhere else in Europe at the moment, i.e. not particularly well. Yeah. Because they can't let go of the 90s, basically. So are we working on the assumption that Starmer's going to win them? Because I think we have to at this point. I mean, you know, I will be an outlier for Rebecca Long-Bailey, I think. While she doesn't quite energise me in the same way as Corbyn, you know, I do like her. But if we assume that Starmer wins, then what can we keep from the last four years? Well, I don't know if you've read his ten pledges. Geraint and I went through them on our last politics episode, but Mm -hmm. they are all, like, Corbynism light. It's Owen Smith time again. Nothing as bad as one-hour contracts, but there's still very carefully phrased God, no one's asked a personal question, have they? Um. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think he's just too boring to make many of the same gaffes as Owen Smith. Mm-hmm. Time will yeah. tell what Kia's brand of gaff is, you know. It'll probably shit jokes, like when he tries to be <laughs> like, oh, less wooden. Yeah, <laughs> I hope he's got people like, stay away from the dick jokes, Kia. In fact, jokes in general. No-go zone. Constantly um, telling himself not to bust out the Andrew Dice Clay classics every time he's <laughs> up on stage. <laughs> so I think that there will be always from, until like, I don't know, if Keir Starmer loses massively and the Blairites have a counter-revolution. Mm. Well, I'd hope if Keir Starmer loses massively then we can have a, another counter-revolution because the left will be more present in the party than they yeah. were when Corbyn got elected, hopefully. My worry there is that a lot of people are going to leave the party if someone that isn't a left candidate wins. Um, Well, I think if Keir Starmer wins, and I think a lot of people on the left, the reaction might be to wait and see rather than to immediately just walk out. Um, I'm not going to leave because, you know, Jeremy Corbyn didn't for like 30 mm. years and I feel like having supported him, I owe it to him. No, that's obviously a bad reason, but you know what I mean? I feel loyalty loyalty Um, to the Labour left. They stayed in the party for good times and bad times. If I fucking flounce out because they're not in charge anymore, Mm. you know, that means that I've done like a fraction, put a fraction of the effort into trying to get socialism well actually you've just <laughs> you've just reminded me of like one of the most sorry just to go off on a little bit of a tangent no, it's cool. you've just reminded me of one of the 
strangest post-election moments I had, which was the Sunday after the election, so like three days after, I was still just like a complete wreck. And a friend of mine, who'd always been fairly Corbyn sceptic, but you know, nonetheless had seen how much I'd had invested in the whole thing and got me out for lunch just to check that I was all right. And we just had a long conversation about the whole thing. And I dropped her back off at Dawson Junction and then walked home and saw this woman walking down the street just looking really quite dishevelled and with an incredibly broken look on her face. And I thought I recognised her, so I just said, like, sorry, excuse me, are you Diane Abbott? And she said yes, and kind of backed away from me. She was clearly expecting this volley of racist abuse because, you know, presumably that's what she's been getting off like everyone else. And I just said, look, you know, I've seen you speak at Navara things, World Transformed, etc. I hope this doesn't sound weird, but I just wanted to thank you for the last four years because, you know, you... Yeah. John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn are the only people in British politics who've ever really given me anything to believe in, to hope for, and to actually belong to. And I said, I'm really sorry it didn't turn out the way we wanted. And I said, I've been crying all weekend. She said, yeah, me too. And, you know, I said, look, what you've done in your career in politics has been amazing. And what you've done the last four years has been incredibly brave. It's taking all that shit on all of our behalf. And I just asked her if I could give her a hug. And so she just, like, cried on my shoulder for a moment. That's it, you um, know? Like, Diane Abbott fucking got shit-canned on behalf of the left for decades. And then yep. was just like, okay, I'm going to get literally shit-canned all day, every day on behalf of the left now for the last four and a half years. So, yeah, I do feel a kind of obligation to her to Corbyn and McDonald, and it's why you know I'm not very critical of them as some I've had my times when I've criticized you know all of them on something mm. or other but I you know I couldn't comprehend being in their position over the no. last few years and I've said this before I said this on our most recent episode with Jude and Jude very you know rightly said nobody seriously believes this though they're just saying it to wind you up but this line about Corbyn's ego that you got in the wake of the election oh. you know <laughs> kind of, <Yeah. laughs> you know unbelievable any of us can say straight up no Corbyn was doing this for us why the yeah. fuck would he take yeah. this absolute rat fucking just for his own personal because he feels good at fucking rallies corbyn could have stepped down any day and done events around the country where people would give him loads of love you know he doesn't need to be leader for that he was doing it for socialists and for socialism and as condescending as this is in most contexts for people who need a Labour government because he is horrified by the inequality he sees in the country and that's something I can't say for a lot of MPs I don't get the sense that they're genuinely moved by what they see around them outside of Westminster. So, yeah, that's great, Juliet, that you got to actually, like, tell Diane how you feel, you know, because I feel, like, protective of all these people, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we talked about the generational stuff earlier and the sort of sadness of losing that generational link to the 60s and 70s global struggles and the 80s struggle against the imposition of this new reality so I think it is incumbent on us to keep up that generational link ourselves. We all have been part of writing a pretty significant part of 21st century global left history, actually. I don't think it's arrogant or over the top to say that what's just happened, what's just passed between all of us is going to have an awful lot of interesting effects that you can't possibly predict. And something I keep thinking about as someone who's based in London is pretty precarious. And, you know, I've been doing some university teaching lately and seeing how the university students were much more 
politically engaged and energised than my generation were around the 2001 general election. I vividly remember not bothering to get out of bed to vote in 2001, because why would you? And, you know, what you've got now is a generation of people under 40, which is quite a lot of people, who have seen this one man in politics who has, for the first time in their lives, probably certainly the first time in my life, actually really taken their interests and their needs seriously and has really tried to stand up for them. Because one of the things I really ended up thinking about after this election is not just like how like, racist and unpleasant this country is, but also how much it hates young people. Yeah. I mean, you did a very good episode with Liam Young a couple of years ago about how the Blair government, particularly, you know, in its sort of second term, treated youth. And, you know, obviously yeah. I grew up in a Daily Mail household. and It was just an endless barrage of like, aren't young people terrible? And you should be scared of them and hate them and make their lives a misery. But, you know, you are going to have hundreds of thousands of younger people who've seen this fundamentally decent man destroyed by this very open and very kind of gleeful confederation of establishment forces, you know, ranging from the centre left to the far right. Yeah, seen so this man wide spanning. Burnt you know, down and humiliated and torn to pieces in front of them and told that they should be pleased about this. And, you know, these people have been monstered and gaslit at every turn. And a lot of them have very little to lose and are stacked up in cities and still have all their networks. And there's going to be consequences to that. I don't know what they are or when, but yeah. things will happen and maybe sooner than you think as well. Well, no one saw Corbynism coming. Well, exactly. Yeah, mm. I certainly didn't. You know, he's MP for the next hour over from me. And, you know, I'd never heard of him somehow. I managed to miss it. <laughs> it was weird, actually. It's weird when you do find you're listening or watching something or reading something pre-2015 and Corbyn comes up. Like, I was listening to an interview with Tariq Ali from just after Ed Miliband lost. Mm. And he was like, well, I would have voted for Labour if Jeremy Corbyn was my MP. <laughs> and, yeah. uh... I mean, one of my only mentions, of course, been on Twitter really before he decided to stand for the leadership was me basically politely slagging him and a couple of other leftists off for wasting their energies for so long on the Labour Party <laughs> and I was obviously never been so happy to be proven comprehensively wrong well, on that you know, during the Miliband period Owen Jones would frequently tweet things with the hashtag why not join the Labour Party um, yeah and, presumably know, like, people were just like fuck off I, I was blocked by him for a long time over that exact issue people, people mocked him to the hill and you know, back like, 2017 or something the... Yeah, 2015, yeah. wasn't like 2015, it? 2015, yeah. If you want a good reminder of what the Labour Party was like, listen to the Navarra episode that covers the 2014 Labour Party conference and sets out their agenda for 2015, because it was really shit. But, I'd like to hear that. You know, Owen Jones would tweet this, and every time the Labour Party did something terrible, which was pretty frequently... You know, everyone would tweet that, you know, controls immigration mugs with the hashtag, why not join the Labour Party? <laughs> and like, Owen, if you're listening, I just, you know, want to make on behalf of everyone who was doing that, a really massive apology, because you were right. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. We yeah. Well, totally non-judgmentally, because this is not a mark against Owen by any means, but it shows the success of Corbynism, to some extent, in setting the agenda within the Labour Party, which is that in 2015, pre-Corbyn, obviously, Owen was pitching Lisa Nandy as the left candidate. Now mm. she's on the ballot as the most overtly right-wing candidate. Yeah, I mean, I think, reading between the lines, I think Nandy was doing the Clive Lewis 2016 thing before Clive Lewis did, of trying to sort of <laughs> go above everyone else's head and try and get left-leaning journalists on side. Mm. 
No, maybe, yeah. Still, I think that is indicative of how the dial has been changed a little bit for the better, so I think, at least in the immediate wake of Corbynism, there is going to be a pressure on any Labour leader to argue within at least a superficially socialist framework. Yeah, at least for a couple of years. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Until all the three leftists in Starmer's cabinet get replaced by, like... Uh, well, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> John Woodcock or something. Mm. <laughs> returns no, he's, Lord he's Woodcock. <laughs> Weirdly, I almost said the ghost of John Woodcock, but unfortunately he is still among us. He walked among us, yes. Um... I actually, I remembered the thing that I was going to say earlier on in our conversation about Remain, and I will. what I'll say to you is it was totally ungermane to the wider conversation today, but just to satiate your curiosity, which I know needs satiating what i was gonna say is that a lot of the remain accounts on twitter are definitely bots not run by russia but run by some poor fucker somewhere in london you know <laughs> like some of them are real a load of them are guys having midlife crises obviously but definitely i think a large percentage of them just as evidenced by the sheer amount of retweets that the people's second ref account with its like people's hunter led by a andrew adonis uh, people's pinochet stuff got that can't all just be absolute fucking idiots like you know, Clearly, the numbers on pro-Remain stuff was getting artificially boosted mm. by bot accounts. I have absolutely no doubt about this. I don't care if people at home listening to this think that I'm a conspiracy theorist. I am in this case. Did you see Femi's joined the Labour Party now? Yeah, I did. I did, bastard. Obviously, he was at a CLP meeting arguing for Keir Starmer and saying something incredibly banal, but I forget what it was. <laughs> so, oh, what a shock. So what are we hoping for then? Like, what what do we think we are going to be able to save? Is there any optimism we can have, is what I'm I, trying to say. I think where we take the stand on exactly what we can realistically defend there is going to depend quite a lot on the result coming up in a few weeks, really. Yeah. It's obviously going to be much easier if Rebecca Long-Bailey wins to be taking where we were as a starting point and trying to fix the bits we got wrong, whereas... Obviously, if a candidate of the right gets in, it's going to inherently be a bit a bit more of a defensive operation to start with. Yeah. What can we protect? What do we need to prioritise? But it's going to be a difficult one because it's, it's going to be finding the right balance of essentially trying to sabotage the worst excesses of the right without being able to be framed as obvious wrecking behaviour. Yeah, yeah. Well, the stuff they do, most of the stuff that the right did against Corbyn is basically out of the remit of the Labour left. Obviously, I know there's like, for some reason, about half the leadership. Or, I don't know, I think Gabriel Pogrand from The Times just basically sits outside the door of Jeremy Corbyn's office, just getting handed massive dossiers of papers every day. So it's not entirely unprecedented that the left would leak stuff to the right-wing press. But it's certainly not as common an occurrence and i certainly don't think it would be done with the same vociferousness and the same open glee that you got from like michael duggar even when he was in corbyn's shadow cabinet as well as a whole host of other figures for me though the question about the aftermath is i guess we can all speculate all day about what's gonna happen and 
I, you know, already said what I want to do is I want to remain in the Labour Party, but building on what Geraint says, I will be liberated from having to be a kind of full-time advocate of the Labour Party, and I will be able to have more of a critical distance, I think. But I think I'm also interested in the question of how do we cope? Like, Mm. how have you guys been coping with this new reality? I haven't. I'm just... Yeah. I haven't. I've just been really depressed. Yeah, me Um, too. I've been so depressed. Yeah, um, and I'm pro. I'm prone to depression anyway, and I've had yeah. other stuff going on as well. But I've been horrifically depressed. I've been mourning. I've been very, very sad. You know, I had an awful lot invested in the idea of yeah, Corbyn becoming prime minister materially as well as emotionally, because there's lots of things about my personal life that just would become a lot better. If Corbyn had got in, you know, I'm teaching, like I said, I'm teaching at university now on an incredibly precarious contract and I'm going to be on strike in a couple of weeks. And we had a meeting about strike and somebody in the meeting uttered the phrase, we've tried parliamentarianism and that didn't work. And I was just kind of, you know, as I do whenever any reference to the election result comes my way at the moment, I just let out like a big sigh and felt really sad. Oh god, um, when the new copy of Tribune arrived, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. after Corbyn in big letters on the front cover, I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. No, I mean, I've, I've been like that too. Indeed, yeah, that did make me very sad. I haven't coped yet. And I mean, one thing I do want to do is maybe try and organise some sort of event where maybe the older end of the younger cohort around Corbynism, so, you know, people in their sort of mid to late 30s, have some sort of exchange with the older end of Corbynism. That is the people who had to rebuild after 83 and the miners strike and maybe have some sort of cross-generational conversation about how they coped and what they did so like you talking to hillary wainwright or something like that something you know, like, a, a that. Yeah, like that nice yeah that's a good idea actually maybe a couple of other people on a panel as well um like landsman or something simply, yeah yeah no i should actually try and make this happen i think but you know that would be a way of kind of coping it is difficult because I think we could have done with either Corbyn staying in post for like six months to a year, but that was yeah, never, till that, conference. That was never going to be possible after such a bad defeat. I think it'd be lost it would like be awful for him. Twenty seats or something. It would have been different, but obviously wasn't tenable. Or yeah. things get resolved so quickly that we know immediately what the new direction is going to be. But I think this long limbo period is going to be difficult. And, you know, until we get that result on, is it the 4th of April, then we don't know. But I mean, I do think it will be good for not all of left wing activity to get sort of sucked quite so much into the Labour Party. It might be good to have mm. some critical distance. It might be good for the sort of socialist campaign group of MPs to have some time on the back benches and do more community yeah. work mm-hmm. it might be good to build and there's, there's now outside over 30 people in the socialist campaign group and well, this around, is it. I mean, around 40 broadly aligned to the left because labor only won one seat it's easy to forget that but because you know obviously a lot of the change uk people and retirees and stuff all got replaced you know there is actually a quite good intake of new people and i mean yes yeah, we were saying that Faisal Shaheen didn't get in. I think that's a real loss. I think, actually, despite the uh, questionable position on trans stuff, I do think Laura Pidcock's a loss as well. You know, Dennis Skinner is just symbolically very, very sad. It's um, tragic, yeah. You know, I really, really love that guy. And again, another one who was just always on our side. Exactly. But, like, Zara Sultana, obviously, 
Um, great. It's making a lot of waves. I really like Bella Viradi, who's taken. Literally, is going to mention her. Sam Tarry obviously gets all the milk jokes. Uh, (laughs) and gives us a link with the past as well because what if gates had just been replaced by somebody who just wouldn't talk about milk um yeah i know who just pretended that that didn't define the entire area of ilford well exactly i was thinking about real politic and about the very sad and tragic loss of mike gates as a public figure i mean we'll always have that michael crick video which (laughs) <laughs> one of the funniest things I've ever seen. The, oh, the, the, bit, the bit where they blur out Mr. Richard's <laughs> face. <laughs> <laughs> the, the voice as well. The voice, Michael Crick's voice. It's just, you know, they sort of. It's so Michael like. The voice is kind of ridiculous. It's like he's uncovered a really grave criminal enterprise, exactly. you know. It's like they Mr. Richard Miller has told people <laughs> to send their postal votes to Gapes' office. He <laughs> This is illegal. (laughs) (laughs) He starts the whole video in that kind of outraged tone and keeps trying to escalate it, but he's already at a point where any other journalist would save for the big reveal at the end. (laughs) What what we saw in the election is that satire, when not expressed through conventional media, and especially from a left-wing perspective, is absolutely terrifying to the establishment oh absolutely <laughs> like, people yeah. who are dickheads like armando inucci it's like oh satire's dead no mate you've just forgotten how to do it yeah. too many jess phillips in conversation events like <laughs> you know clearly just like the sheer hysteria leveled at everything from us to trevor bastard to the fucking sheer like just all the different people posting the absolute baitest <laughs> fake news on twitter throughout the campaign which is so funny and people took it so seriously yeah but this brings me around to sort of question i wanted to ask you two which is that you guys are going to carry on doing this podcast right because i mean podcasts one of the things i thought of when i saw the election result and how bad it was i was like <laughs> I've taken a lot of joy and consolation from podcasts the last couple of years, you know, that kind of parasocial experience. I had a run when I was traveling an awful lot and I had two months away in Ukraine in summer 2018. And I just listened to loads of podcasts because it just felt like being around my mates back home, you know, even mm. though I hadn't met a lot of people doing them. But like you guys are going to keep going, despite the fact that the paradigm that your show grew out of has passed now. Whatever we get next, even if it's Rebecca Long Bailey, it's not going to be the same you know, a lot of the figures that, you know, Chris Leslie and Mike Gapes are dead now, um, <laughs> along with their party, it's, you know, not going to grow into the big tree after all. But, you know, you guys are going to keep doing this, right? So well, if yeah, so, what, what's keeping you in it? Stubbornness, not wanting to let our detractors and our enemies and haters win. These are all good motives, yeah. Um... Refusing to cede the Milk Gapes memes to the soft left. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fucking hell. Like, goddamn. Why do these people, like, they don't appreciate intellectual property, honestly. It's ridiculous. Private property. I am going to keep writing for Tribune and New Socialist and these other new left publications that have sprung up. I may well start doing Sweet 212 again. I probably will. I am going to, in my journalism, keep being an outrider and an advocate for socialism, you know, whether that's something that happens through the Labour Party or not. And, you know, my readers and listeners aren't going away, nor Tribunes, New Socialists, your listeners aren't going away. Our networks are going to survive. And I think this is one reason why a lot of the kickback against us has been so furious is they already know that we're not going to go away. And that's important. 
definitely. I mean, I was thinking basically that one of the ways that I've been able to express how I'm feeling about the election has been that I've been playing music and I've been working some of the feelings into the songs mm. I've been writing. And, you know, I think a lot of creative people on the left are gonna find themselves taking solace in their creative pursuits. I know yeah. you've been putting your feelings into writing. And that's also been another thing, it's just that I've had more energy to focus on the film aspects of the show post-election mm -hmm. than I have for political episodes. We've got a lot of stuff recorded now, and I'm gonna have to force myself to edit a load of it. But yeah, it's almost like recording and talking about politics is like lancing an open wound and then listening over <laughs> and editing it is, I don't know, just like yeah. hacking off the leg or, or something. It's pretty grim to think about all this stuff to be honest that's, yeah that's i mean why... i've been been writing this piece the last week or so and just keep crying and like going back and listening to the podcast i was listening in the run-up to the election and re-listening to them and things like that and it's quite hard reliving that stuff but i think you know it might be necessary for a while as a way of I think you know, so. coming to terms with it I think this episode is necessary, you know? I think this is a bit harder. When I'm getting my feelings out about the election in music, at least then I can let the guitar do the talking for mm -hmm. a bit. I can I can stop yelling when I run out of lyrics and just yeah, do a bitch in solo, but like you can't you can't do that on a podcast, obviously, or adding in clips of music is far different to actually playing music, you know? It's a whole different thing actually getting into depth about all this stuff and talking about it with other people. But that's what we're going to do, and that's the start of our recovery, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, when the election result hit, I think a lot of people, their first instinct was to, like, close down their social media accounts or whatever, and that was what I did for a couple of days. And then just realised, no, actually, I need those networks, I need those comrades, and that sense of solidarity. And I'm still going to need that, and I'm still going to have it. And we on the left, and, you know, we who supported Corbyn, as much as a lot of people to our right are trying to pretend it never happened... We all experienced the 2017 election and we all experienced the joy and the solidarity and just the hilarity of that election. I mean, a lot of that election was very, very funny. And, you know, we're going to carry those feelings with us and we are going to be aware that a lot of those policy positions were popular and it was possible to build a movement around them. And whatever happened to the Labour Party, it's not the be all and end all of left wing politics. It's not the only way to build a movement or there are ways of building a movement that has some relationship to it that isn't kind of all consuming. And I think it's important for us to remember that and we're not going away. Yeah, absolutely. Should we end on that note then? Because I think that's the kind of thing people need to hear right now. Yeah, I think I we've think had so. a, a bit yeah. of optimism finally, and we should probably <laughs> quit while we're ahead. Well, <laughs> the only thing I've got written down is REMAIN BOTS in all caps, so I don't really well, have anything more. Yeah, um... yeah, exactly, and I already covered the REMAIN BOTS, so what more could you ask for, really? Yeah. We have now covered all of politics. It's done. I'm just exactly. cast a very quick note over this thing about the election I've written. Okay. See if there's anything that we should have brought in, but I don't think there is. Little bits of it that have made me sad, just rewriting them, like the phrase, within weeks he was addressing a huge crowd on Glastonbury's main stage full of people wearing T-shirts bearing his name. <laughs> it's amazing how, yeah. how people were just like, well, we can just dispose of this, you exactly, know. We can yeah. just trash this, fuck this. Another guy who can get an adoring crowd at Glastonbury will come along tomorrow, you know. But a centrist, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Corbyn being taken for granted is, like, my absolute oh. better noir, but... Mm -hmm. I've got a reference I... to Sean Bonney, who died during the election campaign, and his poem that went... 
when you meet a Tory on the street, cut his throat. It will bring out the best in you. It's as simple as music or drunken speech. <laughs> um, that was good. Yeah, great line. Thank you, Juliet. And uh, uh, this has really been enjoyed a good it. recording. Uh, yeah. 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 I think nice we should... thing.
it's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.